I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. All right, we are sitting down with uh, Karen Salonwhite, the executive director of Hope for Mental Health here in Nova Scotia. And um, I guess, you know what, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand the floor over to you, Karen, to uh, give us a little insight into who you are, the work that you do, but also tell us a little bit about um, Hope for Mental Health and, and about the, the recent name change of, uh, of the new name, uh, uh, which is Hope for Mental Health and, and where, that all, where that all began. Wonderful. Well, thank you for having me today. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak about Hope for Mental Health, um, previously known as the Schizophrenia Society of Nova Scotia. So back in 1982, so quite a few years ago, uh, a number of families came together to create an organization to advocate on behalf of individuals living with schizophrenia. So over the years, things changed and evolved. Um, I started with the society almost four years ago. And at that time, um, we were supporting people with all mental illnesses. And that continues to happen today. So one of the reasons we looked at changing our name is it's confusing to people. If you support mm-hmm. people with all mental illnesses, why are you the Schizophrenia Society? And the word schizophrenia, unfortunately, today still carries such negative connotations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're trying to move forward as society in a way to be more accepting of mental illness. But schizophrenia and psychosis are still two of the more serious mental health um, disorders that people really shy away from and don't want to have anything to do with. and, and the media has perpetuated that. Mm. Uh, but the good news is CBC uh, this winter contacted us to do a piece on living with schizophrenia because people who are diagnosed with schizophrenia or psychosis can go on to lead a very happy, per normal life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we, we actually uh, we had a guest on the show a number of years ago who uh, who lives with uh, schizophrenia. And uh, I mean, I, I think I'm I'm speaking for all three of us, but that that was quite a like eye opening experience for us to have that conversation with her, um, because up until that conversation, you know, I think we came into that with those sort of preconceived uh, notions of what schizophrenia may or may not look like, mm-hmm. and so it was it was it was it was quite a, a miraculous conversation, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, to speak yeah. to someone who's living with it, I, I am curious about the with the name change. I understand that that um, if you're helping people who have other or live with other mental illnesses, 
um, beyond schizophrenia, then changing the name makes a lot of sense. But also speaking to the stigma part of it, um, is it, was there a conversation about like, well, maybe we should keep the name because, you know, what about the people with schizophrenia who are looking for a place to seek help? Will they now struggle to, to find that? Was that part of the conversation that you had? Oh, definitely. Um, we had this conversation has been ongoing for about three years and it was recently approved at a special meeting two months ago. Um, and then we unveiled the, the brand at our annual general meeting last Saturday. So, yes, it was a concern not only for individuals living with schizophrenia, but also for their family members mm -hmm. and for those of us who work as employees within the organization. The one thing is we're really still committed to supporting individuals with schizophrenia, psychosis, their families and their friends. And that will never change. And one of the things that we did is we held focus groups. So we had three focus groups, one with individuals with lived experience. The second group was with family members and the third was the general public. And the interesting thing is we went to this round of focus groups with um, some, some names that we thought were good names. And it was interesting. It didn't matter what group the individuals came from. Nobody liked those names. So we said, okay, we need to step back and figure out how we're going to tackle this again. Mm. So we did the second round of focus groups and we did them in such a way it was just natural. Like it was just having a conversation and people were throwing things out. But it was still three separate groups. Individuals with lived experience was one, their families two, and the general public three. Um, and so individuals with lived experience generally felt it's time to change the name, right? Mm -hmm. And then family members were a little bit concerned. And the general public was, well, it, we should change the name. You know, it, it doesn't, I guess one of the beliefs we have at the society is we, a person isn't their diagnosis, right? So you might be a person who's been diagnosed with schizophrenia, but that's not how we see you. We, we find, we meet you where we, you are, we find out what kind of supports you need, and then we provide them. Mm. So the society provides like a range of programs for individuals with lived experience and programs for families. We're the only mental health organization in the province who support families the way we do, and we do that in three ways. One is we do a family support group. Um, which meets twice a month. And Zoom, as we're doing here today, has become very popular and has allowed us to become truly a provincial organization. And uh, another program we deliver is Family Matters in Mental Health. And that's an 11-week program, which is facilitated by trained clinicians from the health authority and trained family members um, to deliver the sessions. Mm. So it's to help families um, be able to better support their, their loved one. Mm. And the other thing we do is one-to-one -one family support. So if a family member is really struggling, they can call into the team and then the manager of um, family supports, which is Danny Himmelman, she will determine who the best person is to reach out and mm. talk to that, to that family.
And for individuals with lived experience, we have a peer support program. So um, individuals who have lived experience but are doing very well and then support uh, their like peers in the community. Uh, we have um, a group called From Recovery to Discovery and it meets every Thursday. And this is a group that's been as long as anyone can remember open to anyone regardless of diagnosis. Mm. And we have a community living program where we support people living in apartments so they can live independently and you know, hopefully avoid having a relapse. Speaking of that, um, that part, regardless of, of diagnosis, like how do you be, because one of the things that we've heard, you know, time and time again, is that it's really difficult, um, for people to arrive at, at a mental illness diagnosis. And it oftentimes can take a lot of time. Um, how do, do people come to you sort of before they've been formally diagnosed and, and how in that case, do you, do you sort of point them in the right direction to help navigate the healthcare system here? Yes, and and we do um, because we aren't clinicians. So we aren't um, medically trained, but we do have extensive experience supporting individuals who live with mental illness. Um, So people come and they may disclose their diagnosis, say they come to From Recovery to Discovery, which is the individual support group. they may not disclose their their diagnosis, and that's okay. We mm-hmm. never push. We never we never ask. It's all voluntary. Um, and some people, as you mentioned, may not have a diagnosis yet. They fall into that category. They're trying to get in to see a psychiatrist. Their things are being they're being evaluated. So there's a real continuum of where people are in mm-hmm. terms of getting diagnosed. In, in terms of the history of uh, the Schizophrenia Society of Nova Scotia, at, at what point um, uh, since the early 80s did the society start offering services to people um, who were living with mental illnesses that weren't just schizophrenia or, or psychosis? Um, I've been able to track it back at least 12 years. Mm. At least, um, you know, from like many organizations that started in the 80s and before, records um, weren't kept electronically. So sometimes mm-hmm. papers fade and <laughs> there's all kinds of things. But it goes back to, well, 12 years ago, at least. And one of the interesting things about that is um, individuals who were very committed to the to the name Schizophrenia Society didn't even realize we were supporting other people. So that became part of the conversation in terms of supporting our members and deciding to move forward and become hope for mental health. Mm. Um, something that I, that I wanted to comment on, um, comment on to something that you said earlier, Jer, and, um, and something you said, Karen, about like the stigma of, of specifically of like psychosis and, and, um, and schizophrenia, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but in, in our experience talking with people, it seems like one of the uh, one, a piece a, a piece that kind of perpetuates the stigma that I feel like is really misunderstood specifically in those two um, in in those two mental health um, diagnoses is the the lack of understanding around the spectrum on which those two things can fall. Like that, it's not just it's it's not like a 
it's not a broken arm. It's not, you know, you break your arm and there's, you know, one way to break it. It's that there's, there's, you know, we have had a conversation, we've had a conversation with somebody who lives with schizophrenia, who, uh, was in this, like, like, uh, was in like a really fairly manageable, um, um, space. And then we've also had a conversation with somebody who's uh, as a family member of somebody who lives with mm-hmm. schizophrenia, who their family member was very much not in a manageable space. And that's the spectrum on which these things lie. And, um, and I think that there's a lot to be said about, about combating stigma by, um, by understanding that that is a spectrum and that somebody can fall anywhere on it. Um, and not to just pigeonhole or, or just make the assumption that somebody's living with schizophrenia is a, um, is a, is a, 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 a you know, the, you heard like the word crazy is, is, yeah. you know, the word that, um, the word that jumps out, I think when people think of, uh, of somebody who lives with schizophrenia or with psychosis, it's kind of like, I think for a lot of people, the synonym that they, um, that they associate with, um, where something that I like to ask pretty much everybody we talk to in the mental health space is, okay. is the last five or 10 years have been, seem to have been like a pretty major shift or like the, the momentum has started. Like we've started pushing the boulder, um, in terms of talking about mental health and how people, how, how the everyday average person recognizes that, um, that a, a mental health issue is something that, that a lot of people deal with. Um, and a lot of people that a lot of people deal with that, that, that they know and might not know that they are, that they are dealing with something. Um, from your perspective, working with a mental health society, uh, how do you see the shift in the last uh, decade or half decade? There has definitely been a shift, but we have a far ways to go before we are truly an inclusive society where your diagnosis doesn't matter because there's, there are even organized events that happen annually that if you're looking for a representative, somebody who has lived experience to either be on TV or radio or in the papers um, or even posters, individuals with schizophrenia and psychosis are not included. And we've been told that directly because that that's not okay. So we've made steps. So there's certain mental health diagnoses that are seen as acceptable mm. and others that aren't. So what right. we need to do is bridge the gap and say, like, we all have mental health. Um, sometimes our mental health is better than others, depending if you're going through like an illness, a relationship issue, you lose somebody close to you. We all have different um, aspects of our life that impact our mental health and our well-being. So people, when people years ago would hear the word net mental health and they'd go, oh, that's not a conversation I'm willing to have. Mm-hmm. But now people are more open. So yes, there's positive change that has happened. I'm really glad we're moving forward. I'm just looking forward to the day where people are just people and we support them where they are and everyone's unique. So there's no two individuals who come to us at the Schizophrenia Society who present it with their illness the same way, who are on the exact same regimen to treat the illness, you know, Mm -hmm. how they uh, 
go along the path of recovery. Mm-hmm. It's it's so individual. So we we were um, we were having this conversation on the weekend uh, with a friend of ours who's in the in the military, and and I was talking about how like you know we we have made a lot of strides in in reducing stigma around mental health in the last five to ten years. Um, but when I was hearing him talk about the military, it made me think not just about the military as an institution, but like the corporate world and how yeah. when you work in a in a company and in like a structured hierarchy like that, that people are might be less likely to to hire you or promote you if they know that you've, you know, experienced some form of mental illness. And I think that's now like the new benchmark for for how we um, look at mental health in our society is like when does that become not a factor in how we consider people for job promotions and it seems you know even saying that now it seems like ambitious that we would get to a point like that because the stigma is so thick and like you know maybe in some cases it's relevant to you know if somebody's doing a job where that could jeopardize the quality of work that they do in a certain situation is it is it worthwhile worthwhile to irrelevant to consider that i guess and um you know it it's hard like i feel i feel really torn in two ways about that and and i'm not sure it's 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 just like one of those areas that i think that like that's a that's a a far ways away Mm. still to consider that as a possibility yeah um what what are what are some of the um what are some of the ways that 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 um, the society and 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 family members, um, friends, people that are in the lives of somebody who lives with schizophrenia, that they can do to be helpful and supportive. And I'm asking that question from this from the perspective of of I grew I, I grew up and um, and a friend of my a friend of my father's um, who he had played hockey with for a very long time like played hockey with growing up. Um, he. He was. I had learned later in my life that he had that he had schizophrenia, and you know he always had strange behaviors, and he would call at at you know cr- you know cr- crazy hours. And I remember, and I have memories of like my aunt um, having um, you know having to tell him that he couldn't come over, or like these like these these kind of like strange situations that as a child I would go like, well, what's going on? And they would say, you know, they'd give me some answer about whatever it was that wasn't. That wasn't he has schizophrenia because I wasn't in a the headspace to to understand what that really was at yeah. such a young age, but then being told later like what that was um, and that <clears throat> and that hey remember my friend who you know all these experiences you kind of remember throughout your childhood you know he lived with schizophrenia and um, and you know his life saw a really dramatic shift when he started experiencing oh. that um, and so from that perspective I I I kind of I think about. I think about how how many how many kind of friends and family I believe he really kind of lost in in that yeah. in that experience yeah. of trying to of of trying to navigate living with with yeah. that condition in a fairly serious way. Well, there's um, the society on our website. Um, there's a tool we call the navigator. And so how it's set up, it's by postal code. So you determine whether you're willing to go 10, 20, 50 kilometers away for programs and services. And then there's a drop down menu to give you um, an idea of what's available. So there's a lot of traffic on the navigator because people looking for different programs and supports. 
um, if anyone calls and they need support, if there's if it's an individual, we have um, Adrian Power who who runs our programs for individuals with lived experience, and she will reach out. If it's a family member, um, like I said, Danny Himmelman, who's the manager of family supports, she'll reach out. And so what they'll do is they'll talk to the individual and find out where they are. So if it's a family member and say Danny calls the family and they're having a conversation, um, she may say to them about the program Families Matters in Mental Health. And that's a really good program because it helps people develop the skills that that are required to successfully support somebody with lived experience. Mm -hmm. And often, you know, when we're emotionally very close to somebody, when things get really hard, you really feel it because it's almost like it's happening directly to you. Mm -hmm. So we encourage people to, to call us and we then decide, not decide, determine who the best person is mm -hmm. to reach out. And then the individual uh, who's a family member may, to do the one-to-one -one phone conversations, they may do the 11-week program, or they may join the support group, or they just want to go on the website, you know, so it's so different. Are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. There, there are like the, the family, the family, the kind of like the family, um, family member coaching, um, program sort of part is, I think is so crucial because, mm -hmm. because the, the most compassionate of, of, of people, um, you know, with that, that are just ultra caring and thoughtful. And I, I don't, think I think very few of even that category of person is equipped to is just is 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 naturally equipped to to help somebody especially if they are if if they are in a in a in a in a, a fairly like extreme sort of um state of their mental health like there there is um and 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 family is going to be in a lot of cases the 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 like the most structurally sound place for somebody to go to to get support um bef before they before they might access something at like a, at the medical level mm -hmm. i i imagine that uh, i'm curious about it from this perspective like we when we had a guest on with uh psychosis <laughs> she had referred to her reality not being the shared reality mm. uh, in her experience and so I imagine that if you aren't experiencing reality in the same way that we share the, this experience of reality, it might be really hard for you to identify that you are struggling with your mental health to the point that you are experiencing psychosis or schizophrenia. And so it's probably very difficult for you to know, even know that help is something you should be seeking or that it's an option. And so I imagine that it's really important for family members or friends to be aware of what 
sort of options there are for them to be able to support somebody who might be experiencing a crisis like that? Yeah, absolutely. Because one of the things that we do do is support families um, who are struggling because their loved one has either not accepted their diagnosis or they've gone off their medication or there's something that has taken them off track. So the families in our experience are the main support to individuals with living with schizophrenia or psychosis or any other mental health disorder. And I can't, like if I could share with you the testimonials we get from families talking about what a difference having somebody who's walked a mile in their shoes or, you know, understands what a difference that makes to them. So it's families critical and the way our system is currently set up legally is the family's not included in part as part of the, the care team. Mm-hmm. So unless the person with the mental illness is willing to include their family, they're totally excluded. Right. So that makes it very mm-hmm. hard. You mean it's, that from like the medical, like on the medical side? Yeah. And, and legal because it all comes down to legally. So a doctor cannot disclose right. anything or, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, it's really interesting. It's when people are most sick and they need that involvement of a family member or a friend that they push them away. Yeah. Yeah. Right? What a challenging, uh, what a challenging, what, what a challenging framework in, to, to in, in especially in this like in this age as as our understanding and our acceptance and the reduction of stigma in terms of like men, the the discuss the entire conversation around mental health and then this point where we have this this um confidentiality which is of obviously of utmost importance in terms of an individual's right to privacy mm-hmm. and but then all but then so aggressively contradicting that especially on the mental health side how how important Mm. um like familial and like support is for a person that's dealing with something dealing with a mental health Mm. issue or crisis one of the one of the things that has come up in conversation a number of times over the last couple of years um especially when we're talking about like supports for folks who are living with any any sort of mental illness um is is the the very real issue of like um of barriers to to access for for mental health care um and i know that through hope for mental health um there's there's a number of like cost free programs that are available to individuals and, and family members who are seeking support and i i feel like maybe you've, you you sort of touched on them a little bit earlier in the conversation but could you break down like what some of those cost free programs are and and what kinds of supports are, are within those? Okay, so I'll start on the individual side. So our weekly From Recovery Discovery group, they meet online currently. Um, previously, they met in person. And so a person can just sign up and be part of the group one night. They don't have to go every week. They just decide when they want to come and what topic is, if there's a speaker, interest them. 
Um, and then with the peer support, um, we have three trained peer supporters who support individuals in community. So they meet with their peers at, for at least one hour a week to see how they're doing, to help them, um, you know, formulate their goals and discuss where they're having trouble and just having that shared experience. And then our community living program, that's the most intensive program, um, but we're having a challenge increasing the number of apartments we have because everyone knows what the housing situation is like in Metro. Mm -hmm. um, so when you're, and a lot of people, not everyone, who lives with schizophrenia and psychosis some are are able to work and hold down a career and everything and some people can't um just depends where they are in their recovery and um how the imp illness has impacted them over the period of time they they had the, the disorder so i just lost my train of thought <laughs> That's okay. terrible. You were, you were talking well, about um, like the challenges around people who um, uh, experience schizophrenia or psychosis and, and like having a job and, and like experiencing houselessness, I assume, how that well, affects. Well, exactly. So like our program that we support people in their apartments. So there's a, a weekly check-in where uh, two people from our team go in and they meet with the individuals who live in the apartment to see how things are going. They may help them with meal preparation. There may be, there's um, a couple of people right now who are interested in, in um, getting their GED. Mm. So there be that type of support. Anyone who needs help learning how to do laundry or grocery shopping, it's whatever it is the person needs, we try to find a way to make that happen. Mm -hmm. Like, so, I mean, we wouldn't be able to uh, support like a hundred thousand people because mm. there's only five of us. <laughs> so it, That's quite know, a small team. Wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah, no, there's only five of us. Um, and so, and two of us are not direct um, providers of services. It's not that we don't help out with anything, but our IT guy, for example, he takes care of our our computers and everything that's to do with <laughs> IT and uh, also our navigator, our website and all of that. And then um, myself, I'm working on the overall funding structure for the organization and the organization's development. And then uh, the other three team members, they're, they're right on. They're, they're, they're boots on the ground, we call them. Yeah. They know exactly <laughs> what, you know, what is happening out there. Is, is um, to that, to that last point about um, like community outreach, is it because when I think of um, the type, the, the stereotypical types of people that you see in society who you might think the general person might think, you know, lives with, um, schizophrenia or psychosis. They think of, um, you know, that person that they refer to as, as Taylor, you mentioned crazy on the street mm -hmm. corner, you know, shouting at the top of their lungs. Um, and I imagine those are, those are the people who are, who need help the most, um, in our society who might not have the support to get access to that help. And the reason why I'm asking this question is because um, my 
my uncle um, suffered from homelessness and drug addiction and um, was oftentimes, it was the most difficult for him to access support because he by no means had, had the ability to do it. Like he, he couldn't read, he couldn't write. So he couldn't even fill out grant application or applications for housing if he needed to. So I imagine that the people who are at most at the highest risk are those who, who don't have anybody in their lives to help support them and can't support themselves. Um, Is that, is that sort of the, uh, the population that you're trying to support in that type of situation? Well, um, it's a range, it's a continuum, and people can be anywhere on that continuum in terms of their wellness. Mm-hmm. So we can have um, people currently in our apartment program. Nobody's in hospital. Everybody's doing well. Some people have jobs. Some people are looking at school. There's different things. So um, have any of the people involved ever been homeless? Absolutely. It yeah. happens when somebody becomes really unwell and they aren't able to get the help that they need. So things get out of control. But um, for the most part, the people that we're supporting are maintaining their wellness. So they come to us <laughs> when they're relatively well. Mm-hmm. Their family may come to us when they're not well at all. Mm-hmm. So that tends to be the difference for an individual choosing for themselves. They choose when they're well and able to make those type of decisions. Mm -hmm. And then family come to us when they're really in crisis. Mm -hmm. How if people are listening right now in the Halifax area or or Nova Scotia in general, and and they, you know, they want to uh, look at ways that they can support, um, what uh, Hope for Mental Health is up to. Like, how can people get involved? How can people offer their support, if if at all? Um, well, there's many ways to get involved. You can be a volunteer in one of our programs. So, for example, the Community Living Program. Um, we have volunteers who actually are partnered up. I'm just going to move that. Sorry, it was my iPad. I thought I moved everything that could bing out of the way, but I didn't. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> and, you know, it's one of those things, turned off my phone, forgot the iPad. <laughs> um, but apologize for that. Now no, I've lost no, my okay. train of thought. I should tell you, I suffered a, um, a head injury in November. Oh, no. So, oh, yeah. Oh, anyway, crazy story. But um, every now and then I still lose my train. Of course, yeah. I do too, and I I was about to say I've never ha- suffered a head injury, and then I realized I've suffered many. Yeah, you also got hit by a car a couple, a couple of years ago. Right, 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 right. Uh, so what, what, I was, what I was asking was how can people get involved? So one of the things you, you had mentioned was uh, uh, volunteering through one of, the, one of the programs. Are there other ways? Pardon me? I missed are there, that line. Are, are there other ways for people to oh, get involved? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Our board of directors, um, we have one position open on the board right now. So um, that's an opportunity to assist with fundraisers. That's another opportunity to be a donor is absolutely amazing Um, because we're at a point where we're starting to develop um, our ability to raise more revenue. Mm -hmm. So because of the name, Schizophrenia Society corporate sponsors for um, the most part shied away from us. 
Mm. So it'd be wonderful to have some corporate sponsorship and um, or businesses who want to support our organization. Mm. What is what is your um, what is the mandate for hope for mental health going forward? Well, our mandate is to provide programs and services and education to individuals and their families and friends um, so that they can live their best life Mm. is to provide those programs. So we want to see people have the best life possible. Um, This is a, this is a, this is a little bit off of off the topic here. And this is uh, more so just like speaking directly to the listener, but um, uh, the whole time we've been having this conversation about, you know, what the society does and, and the importance of family um, and support systems and, you know, knowing how to, knowing how to be a support for somebody who's living with um, schizophrenia or psychosis or mental illness um, uh, in general um, made me think of uh, there's a city in Belgium, um, which I couldn't remember the name mm. of, but I've, I've looked it up now. It's called Giel, G-E-E-L. Uh, it's in Belgium. And, um, and it is a, I heard a CD, I, I first heard Lab. about it. On, yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was either radio. I think radio lab did one on it, but I also, I think I originally heard it on CBC and then radio lab did, did like a, did like a super deep dive into it. And it is a, it's sort of this like, well, if you go to their Wikipedia page, it's just G E E L. And there's a section there that says a model for, of psychiatric care. And it's essentially like a city where, where, Everybody in the city is like intimately involved or knowledgeable about mm. about people living with mental health issues, and so um, they. It's so just to read like a little piece of this. It's called Giel is a well was well known for the early adoption of deinstitutionalized a deinstitutionalization in psychiatric care. This practice is based on the positive effects that placement in a host family gives the patient. Most importantly access to family life that would otherwise have been denied the legendary sense 7th century blah, 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 like it talks about the kind of the origins of it um but it goes into like how how you know there's if you walk down spring garden road there's there's really there's no shortage of of examples of people that are that are 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 are, are experiencing homelessness and and have some pretty serious mental health issues and they are they are looked at in a very different way and they can't really go into stores and access um, uh, a lot of the services that we have access to Um, not only from a financial means, but from like a stigmatized um, Mm -hmm. uh, perspective. And, um, and I, I just, I really just want to put that out there that everybody should just look into this city and like mm-hmm. get the listen to the Radio Lab episode. Mm-hmm. CBC did a special thing on it. I can't remember the name of it, but you can definitely find it through Radio Lab. It is really, really fascinating because I think mm-hmm. it will it helps kind of just shift the perspective of the average person about how you see somebody who is experiencing a mental health mm-hmm. um, crisis and how that just a different perspective on how you see that person out in the world um, will change the way. That the people around you then see those people, which the, and and it's a ripple effect in terms of I think compassion and understanding that will that ultimately will uh, manifest into some more concrete mm. solutions for uh, 
for people that are living with uh, with the mental health crisis. And and this has been going on forever. Like they really <laughs> like hundreds of years. Yeah. yeah, and really all they've done is normalize what it is to have a different experience of mm-hmm. the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really incredible. And that's where we need to be. Yes. <laughs> that's yeah. where we're, and it, it, we have a journey, but I really believe we can get there. Um, there are a lot of wonderful people out there who are supportive and aren't, aren't judgmental. And then there's another portion of our population that do make judgments. But the ripple effect is really important, like you say, because if you're in a positive frame of mind and you're happy, that rubs off on other people. Mm-hmm. If you tend to be negative, that does as well. So it's how we talk about uh, individuals with lived experience. Mm. I know we've talked about stigma from what the outside world thinks about individuals living with a mental illness, but there's a lot of self-stigma for individuals who live with mental illness because right. of society's response. Mm. And that's really unfortunate because mm. oftentimes um, an individual won't reach out for help because of how they, the stigma and what they think that will mean to them. Mm, right. Well, Karen, I got to say it's uh, it, it feels really good to be able to sit down and have a conversation with someone who is uh, working for an organization that is doing so much important work uh, right here in our hometown of Halifax. Uh, I want to say thank you on behalf of all of our listeners for, for coming on, taking time out of your schedule to sit down with us and, and open our eyes up to the work that hope for mental health is doing. And, um, again, if you're listening right now and you, you, you're in the, uh, you know, the Halifax area and you want to get involved, I, I highly encourage you to, uh, to check it out. Where can people find Hope for Mental Health? Um, our office is located on Canard Street. It's 5571 Canard Street, Suite 206. Um, and on the website, you, you will see all the team's email addresses. Like I said, there's only five of us, so you <laughs> will reach somebody. <laughs> and we, we get back to people quickly. So um, please feel free. If there's anyone out there listening who could uh, benefit from support, we believe that with support, anything is possible. So reach out. And and what is the website? Uh, It's um, hope and the number four mentalhealth.ca. Hey, you just changed your name like a couple days ago. So I don't, you know, I've been living in my condo for, uh, for well over a a year and a half and I still don't know my, my uh, address. So, uh, wow. uh, Thank you. Thank you again, Karen. This has been a real treat. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity. Take care. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even Better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. 
The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it. And we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.